Well, it is a joy to be with you and uh, thank the uh, men for uh, letting me address them uh, with uh, issues from the uh, scriptures this week with regard to uh, living uh, as faithful men in an age in which faithfulness isn't really held up high and realize how significant that really is. And so it is a delight, uh, was a delight to do that and now also a delight to serve here. Just the thing that I count in traveling as I do and speaking in so many churches as I do, uh, to meet people whom we know in common. And just over this weekend, that has already been happening. Uh, and even this morning, uh, there were a couple of uh, greet and meets that were, uh, meet and greets rather, that were really wonderful and uh, caught up with old friends or people who uh, were older friends who now have gone home to glory. And just amazing to see the... Uh, nature of the church. One of the things that I think the Lord has blessed me with has been with a uh, a good mind, at least so far. And I remember my wife always tells people, if you don't want him to remember, don't tell him. Uh, Because I tend to remember that. And I usually remember your family lineage if you've given it to me or else I already know it. Uh, And so uh, it's just a joy to be able to catch up that way. Let me invite you now to turn uh, in your Bibles uh, to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, we'll read this uh, psalm as it uh, gives us our real hope and the question in a a hopeless world, how can we live with God's hope? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go to go with the strong and lead them in procession to the house of the Lord of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon uh, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have uh, gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his abundant steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This far the reading of God's word that he has given to us under the God-breathed power, supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. A few weeks ago, a fellow pastor 
who has gone through some deep waters that would sort of emulate what is here in Psalm 42, a sort of lament, where is God in the midst of all the issues of life? And so for about five years, he's been going through this. Let me just read some of what he wrote. He says, I was certain that the Lord withdrew his favor, favorable hand from me in January of 2017. That's almost coming up to six years, isn't it? By then, I had lost most of my voice, all my teeth, and my strength was fading. My cancer treatment effects, effects were harsh. I had just accepted a forced resignation from my pulpit ministry, which was appropriate given the circumstances, but very painful personally nonetheless. Feeling rejected, disgraced, and lost in an unfamiliar fog, we packed up to move to East Tennessee. And during the move, I suffered a heart attack. For the next four years, I pled for the Lord's favorable hand uh, to return. And all I heard was crickets. The emptiness of my soul was frightening. I wondered if the joy of my Savior would ever return. Perhaps you've been there. I mean, none of us existing in this fallen world without feeling the pain and the anguish of uh, living, just living life, much living the realities uh, in a broken and sinful world. Uh, and here we see in this psalm this, this sense of angst, of uh, being separated from God, having lived with him and, and having uh, worshipped him and loved him and cared for him and, and sensing his presence, all of a sudden it seems to be like our fellow pastor here said, crickets, silence, or at least it appeared that way. What a shame that would have to happen, but it does. And so there, this is somewhat central to everything because in this psalm, we have caught up a number of issues that are just not only about hope, but the things that actually produce that hope that really ground us in the things of God because we have spiritual warfare taking place here. There's a battle going on here for this man's soul. He senses it, and he's not sure what to do, and he's pleading with God to be able to help him do that. And so you may be in that circumstance now, or maybe you have been, or definitely in some time, something's going to happen that will cause things to crash in around you. But if you are secured and anchored in the truth of God, here's what this psalm is saying, is you put your hope in God. That's where you'll find your true consolation. And so we find that no matter where we may be on that Christian journey, that this is a psalm that addresses that central care. God really does hold us in his strong grip. The thing that you see, first of all, here is the restlessness that the psalmist is expressing, a restless spirit because of the loss that he finds. Look at how he, he expresses at the very beginning as the deer. You know, the old translation had the heart, or, but it was a deer. Uh, pants for streams of water. So my soul is panting after God. So you see the analogy. Uh, here's a deer in the desert. And of course, it's being written in Israel, a lot of it is desert. And so it's very dry climate. 
and you could go a long way before you find any streams of water. And so the deer is probably out there uh, sort of wandering in the desert, and uh, he's beginning to get parched. He goes to those familiar places where he usually can find water, and it's not there, so he goes to the next place that he knows is familiar, and again, he doesn't find it for some reason. Maybe a drought's going on, but all of a sudden, his saliva gets thick, and he is... And the word here can be that he is heaving, he's braying, he's uh, under the great distress of not having any water. And so the psalmist says, just like I've seen a deer do that in seeking streams of water to finally assuage his thirst, my soul also has been there. Notice he talks about his soul, not his body. The thirst is at the level of our internal being, our spiritual being, our soul is there. And so the soul is lost because of that. He's wandering, and it's like our fellow pastor here, he says, I felt like everything was closing in on me. It wasn't really helpful. And so just in that way, my soul. Now, where's the soul? The soul is the most inner part of our being. It's where... Uh, we are told in the scripture that at the soul level, at the heart level, that we are to consider where the issues of life really flow from, from the heart, from our inner term being. And at that point, I feel like I'm shriveling up and there's restlessness that comes along. And notice he goes on to say in verse two, my soul again, and is thirsting for God, for the living God. So he knows what will fill him. He knows what will satisfy, but he's not able to find that at all. Uh, He goes on and talks about the uh, desperation. Notice in verse 3, he says, my tears have been my food. This is that restlessness. So there's a lot of weeping that is going on, and he's not eating. He's uh, uh, not wanting to participate in life, uh, not follow a regular course of life and living. Uh, Things seem to be shutting down. Uh, We would maybe call about depression, that is coming about. This would primarily be some kind of spiritual depression that's going on, not necessarily something that's biological, but because he's sensing the loss of God. He knows what the issue is. Somehow God is silent. He can't hear him, and he is feeling the restlessness that comes from that. As a result, he feels taunted by those who are around him. Notice a number of times that it says, the, the, why those around me are saying, verse 3, where is your God? He repeats it again in verse 10, because that was saying, you claim to be a believer, and you claim to have, be a person of faith. You believe that you, uh, you, you give us this testimony that you're walking around with great joy in your heart, and you're singing all these wonderful hymns and praise to God, and you're trusting Him as the one who's the sovereign God, and yet now, because something has come into your life, I uh, see you with a long face, you're downcast in your soul, you seem not to be able to do anything else, where is your God? You know, one of the number one things that people in the world generally chastises about as Christians is that we're hypocrites. And I always say, you're absolutely right. And the reason we are is not because we want to defile God or what he has done for us, is that we are not yet perfected. So I'm redeemed, but I'm not yet perfect. And so I go through those times and we need to realize that really does happen. And the fact that it's reprinted for us and given to us in the scripture means that it's going to happen, but there's always a resolution. But anyway, I just want you to catch the sense of restlessness, of of, uh, disruption, upheaval, 
to the point where things are not happening like they were and what we expect. And we have to be careful then in, as we're living the Christian life when we're talking about the joy of the Lord and we need to make sure the joy of the Lord is our hope and our center, uh, that we not realize that there are hilltops, mountaintops, and valleys. It does happen even in the best of lives. Here the psalmist is reflecting that. But I want to see the reasons for this, okay? The restlessness is there, but the reasons are important because they're really unique. If you look here at verse 2, we have the first one. He says, so my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God, he says here. Uh, he wants to meet with him. There's the sense of lostness in the center. The, the, there was that warm, passionate love. Uh, for the Lord. I mentioned yesterday uh, to the men's group, we were going through the seven churches, the letters of seven churches in Revelation, and we talked about uh, Ephesus, the first church that received the letter. And it uh, said there that it was a glorious church. It was a fantastic church. It was a church that volunteered to do everything. The members were engaged. They were, it was an actor. And it was an Orthodox church to boot. They, they really walked in the integrity of God's Word. And so you wonder, well, what can Jesus then find against them? And what did he find? He says, but I have this against you. You have forgotten your first love. Hmm, what does that mean? Well, who was their first love? It was Jesus. Uh, when Jesus met them, they all of a sudden were excited. They were exuberant. They were jumping up and down for glee because finally there was release from sin. Finally, I have my life together, and God makes, has given me light, and I can see. My, things have changed. But now as I'm living my Christian life, I'm sort of getting used to the routine, and I forget about God, and so I don't meet with Him. My fellowship with Him is lessened. And so he says, I'm, I miss that, and that's one of the reasons why I'm doing that. So he's always talking here in this passage about wanting to come back to God. He knows that. He knows the prescription, but he's having difficulty getting there. So when can I go and my soul meet with God, come back into his presence and luxuriate myself in the brilliance of his glory? It's not happening. So that's a reason for it. Another reason, notice in verse 4, there's a loss of joyful worship. So not only is there the personal fellowship with God, but now the joyful worship. Verse 4, these things, that is the things that are important to me, he's refer reflecting on, these things I remember, what? As I pour out my soul, there's that yearn going on. So we can see the, he's not just inactive here. He, he really wants the uh, truth to come back. How I used to, once upon a time, past tense, how I used to go with the multitude, what? Leading the procession to the house of God. And so the psalmist says, where did we meet? With the people of God, gathering together with shouts of joy, with thanksgiving among the festive throng. Can you imagine that? He, he was actually realizing now that you can't go under a tree and worship God by yourself. No, it's something about gathering with the people of God. Not only is it because God said to it, because he made us as a people, as a body, and we find our true hope and satisfaction when we gather in worship with the people of God and that this, the, the overwhelming unity that's present, the, the lifting up of our voices in unison and harmony, 
uh, do something for us. So I hope that that's the case for you as you're sitting here in this context of a worship that you are saying, man, uh, I hear those words. So not only do they minister to you, but it's the idea is that we're speaking to one another in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and it's make a blessing. And once we get used to that, it, it, it satisfies the soul. I, I really think that God made us. We're, we're not God. God is God and we are not. And uh, so we need that time. So it gave us that regular pattern of one in seven. And so remember the Lord's day, uh, that it serves you in a better way. So when you don't have it, you may not realize it right away, but it actually strips you from the ability to get over the problems that you have because you're not meeting with the people of God, hearing the joyful noise. It's to be doxological. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. That's us. We're the creatures here. And we join in chorus with those above. Praise him above, you heavenly host. Who are they? They're the angels and the seraphim and the cherubim who are gathered around the throne of God. And there we are lifted up. So when we're gathered here in a physical sense, I want you to recognize that we are joining. If we're singing that song and understanding it correctly, that we who are the creatures here below are joining with the creatures there above Singing what? Praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I don't think we ever recognize that. It's hard because we don't see it with our physical eyes. But I tell you, that's what's happening. And so he missed that, and it was a critical data point in his life. So not only did he miss that personal time with God, not only did he miss the time with the people of God, there was a loss of joyful worship. Look at verse 6. It also was a loss of place. He says, my soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. Remember who? God. Where? From the land of the Jordan, so that's east of the Jordan River in the wilderness. I'll remember you there. And from Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in that region in Lebanon, and Mount Mazar, which is in that region as well. And so uh, he is distant now. So you go away. You're out of place and the familiar sights and sounds are gone, so I don't even have those things to help restore me. I'm missing that. There's a loss of place. You don't, you know, if you get used to your home, this one thing I think God blesses us with having regularity of a home, that no matter where you travel, no matter how exciting it's been, no matter what new adventures you've had, it's always good to come and sleep in your own bed. And to finally have home-cooked meals instead of just eating out all the time. In other words, there's something that's good about place. Uh, there, there are a number of times when God would take the exiles, the people into exile, especially uh, the southern kingdom, about 586 when he destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, there's Psalm 137. When now they're in exile, and they're away from Jerusalem, and they're writing this now on the banks of the river there in Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, we hung our harps and we sang and we said, God has abandoned us to a foreign land. And our, our, our uh, captors taunt us, almost like 42 here. They taunt us and they say, sing us another song of Zion. <laughs> but you're not there, are you? How can we sing these songs of Zion, these uh, familiar tunes, Amazing Grace and the Others? in a land that is not ours. We don't have the sights and sounds and smells and foods that are familiar. And so being in a different place 
And sometimes we can be emotionally in a different place, even if we are present where we are. And so that's also mentioned. But it's also a loss of confidence. Loss of confidence in the because of being of self. To look at verse 9, I said, I say to God, my rock, and notice he refers to him as the rock, why have you forgotten me? Uh, I must go uh, about mourning, oppressed by the enemy. He's being beat up. And verse 10, my bones suffer mortal agony. The bones, when you talk about the bones, he's talking about the inner being that we have physically. And sometimes we'll say, it's so cold outside, maybe you've gotten wet with the rain and it's cold. You'll say, I'm chilled down to the bones. In other words, it's getting down deep into your being. And so this psalmist is expressing that uh, not only do I feel the oppression, and here's where spiritual warfare is coming out, because he's being beat up by his own sin, and Satan is taunting him, waving his little crooked finger and saying, <laughs> look at how you're behaving, and you claim to be a Christian, and you just feel it overpressed. In fact, if you go back to verse 8, uh, verse 7 rather, deep calls to deep in the roar of the waterfalls, all your waves of breakers have swept over me. You know what that is referring to is that I, I just feel like I'm being washed away and I can't control it. The tide is taking me out. It's a big drip current. You go back to uh, Jonah chapter 2, you'll find this language. When Jonah was thrown overboard and Jonah 2 is like reading a psalm in which he is now, he feels abandoned because he's been swallowed by the great fish and he's praying because he feels like he's in prison and that great fish is going deep into the depths of the ocean and he feels like he's in a prison. He talks about the bars that are holding him in. He is, he's just totally incapable of doing anything else other than living in fear because he's surrounded by all the things that are a part of that depth. And that's what the psalmist is going through here. Okay, so here are these reasons then. He misses that personal time with God. He misses the joyful assembly in worship and what it does for us on a regular basis. Uh, he misses the place where he finds satisfaction and hope, uh, comfort in the familiar, familiar location. And he feels loss of confidence because he feels overwhelmed by the circumstances that he's going through in the persecution there. Like, God, you have forgotten me, he says there in verse 9. Okay, all of that is there. All right, so there's restlessness just because I can't put my finger on it. I like to say when I'm uh, counseling someone in the, as a pastor that you can't uh, uh, fix what you can't define or to state it affirmatively. You have to define it in order to fix it. If you can't define it, you can't fix it. And during this period of time, it's difficult to define it because it just seems like it's all over the place. I'm just in anguish. Things are not right. So then there's that restlessness that comes because of these reasons that are here. So you're the counselor. What do you say? You know, you're over here. Well, I don't know much, you know. <laughs> you know, this is deep. And that's the way we may get to ourselves. But he's counseling himself, by the way. He talks to himself. And then he's also asking for help. And so what do we find? Here's the restoration to hope. Here's the restoration. Why does he even write this psalm? It's repeated twice in verses 5 and 11. That's sort of the chorus. This is like, remember, the psalms are intended to be sung. And so you have your chorus. And your chorus is verses 5 and 11. What is the chorus? 
Why are you downcast? So you talk to yourself. Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul. Remember, the inner being. Why are you so disturbed within me? He asked that twice in these uh, refrains. So there's the question. How would you answer? It comes back with something that we said, uh-uh, too easy, a little bit pious. It's easy for you to say you don't know what I'm going through. What is the answer? Put your hope in God. Woo! Is that all you've got for me? You know, where's the magic uh, pellet? The magic word, the magic prayer. You know, when, what's the, the, the bullet that will really resolve this thing? Put your hope in God. Well, what is he searching for? My soul pants for you, oh God. Well, then, put your hope in God. You had it there once before. Why not again? And it comes in the context, remember, of spiritual warfare. So we see that God is in the business, first of all, of redeeming us, first of all, through Christ. And he also is doing it uh, in the context of this psalm. Because we take a clue from verse 9 again. Why have you forgotten me? Those words sound familiar? Doesn't that take us back to Psalm 22, verse 1? My God, my God, why have you forgotten me? And so he's crying out, as that psalmist did, uh, on this. Well, then uh, where do we hear that repeated? Oh, we can go to John chapter 19, where Jesus on the cross actually quoted that verse. And he went through the lament where he felt that God was from him. I think he was praying, maybe parts of the Psalms, but especially Psalm 42. Because at the moment that Jesus was on the cross, where he felt the assault of all the sin and the wrath of God against him, he was saying, I'm abandoned. Where can I go and get my release and meet with God again? My father, where can I go in joyful assembly with the people of God? I feel like the breakers and the waves are under me and pressuring me. Listen to how he says it, verse, uh, chapter 19, John, verse 28 and following. Later, knowing that all now was completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled. One of them would be Psalm 22. The other is Psalm 42. Uh, he, he, Jesus said, knowing it would happen, he says, I'm thirsty. You ever wonder why Jesus said, I'm thirsty? Well, he was a human being. He was really thirsty. And so there was the physical attempt to assuage that thirst. He's, when he said it, a jar, this is verse 29, of wine vinegar was there. And so they soaked a sponge in it, probably the soldiers at the base of the cross, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop and plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Well, that was part of the solution because there was the physical agony of being on a cross and having nail prints placed in his hands and his feet and his side. And so, yeah, that would be part of it, but that's not the resolution, is it? What was the thirst? The thirst was that because God was treating him as the sinner in our place, he was there at that point, the one having to be treated against a sin and felt the brunt of the wrath of God against sin, that he felt abandoned. You have forgotten me which in reality God didn't, but that's the only thing you can do to express it in this new time when the gloom and the darkness of God's wrath comes in judgment against sin. And so at that point, what happens next? Verse 30, 
when he had received the drink, the little vinegar, mixed vinegar, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. So he thirsts. They try to solve it with some little bit of vinegar. It uh, just waters his lips and wets his lips a little bit. But what really was happening was there was an interaction taking place between God the Father, who is the judge in heaven against the Son now, who is a sin bearer, and he was being treated as an outsider. So he was missing that fellowship with the Father. He was no longer able to worship in the dialogical presence of the Lord. Uh, He felt overwhelmed by the circumstances. And even the taunts. Remember what was happening? They were were taunting him from the base of the, the foot of the cross. You said you're God. Well, get off the cross yourself. Uh, You claim that you're this and that and the other. Why don't you do this and solve the problem? You have the ability because you said that you're God. And they were taunting him. But he knew he had to go through that for our sake. And so what was really happening? He found when he said it is finished, what happened? He put his hope in God. Just like the psalmist did. In fact, now he uses this principle to share it with us. You know, because what is we're talking about? Your soul is parched. You find release and relief in the water that God provides. And what's that water? It's not only the physical water that swages our thirst, you physically, but it is that is the ministry of the Spirit. Uh, because the water is a picture of the Spirit of God, as I'll show you in just a second. But remember when Jesus met with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? What did he say there? This is chapter 4, beginning at verse uh, 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, uh, and he would have given it to you, this living water. Sir, she said, you have nothing to draw from, and this well is deep. She was talking about Jacob's well that was right there. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his flocks and his herds and now even I coming out from Samaria, the Samaritan town to get water? Jesus answered her, this is verse 13 and 14, everyone who drinks this water, Jacob's well water, the water that we need for human life and sustenance, will be thirsty again. Verse 14, but Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give him will come up to him and become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Huh. Well, that was the only time Jesus dealt with this in John chapter 7. At the end of the great feast, which was Pentecost, by the way, at this time in John 7, uh, it's the only a feast, Old Testament feast that ended in uh, joy instead of, uh, 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 you know, the uh, internal introspection. It was one that ended. So Jesus ends this feast in beginning in John 7, uh, 37 through 39. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Pentecost, Jesus stood with a loud voice because it was a celebratory time so it didn't have to be a soft voice. With a loud voice. And if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And he believes in me. As the scripture said. Where does the scripture say that? Psalm 42. 
and other places, streams of water will flow from him, and your thirst will be assuaged, your real thirst. Put your hope in God. And verse 39 says, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. In other words, the outflow of God's power as Christ on the cross is thirsty, he can't do anything else but experience a little drop on his tongue, and then it says it's finished, and when it's finished, he goes into the immediate presence of his Father, and here now he sends forth this gushing stream of water. Psalm Isaiah 55 already spoke about this. Isn't it interesting that the invitation in Isaiah 55.1 is, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to me and drink. You're not going to find anything that will satisfy your thirst, your spiritual thirst, other than coming to him. Or we can be like the tree, or the, the, Christ, the blessed person in Psalm 1. You know, the blessed person is defined, in, first of all, in, negatively in verse 1 which it says uh, that he is the one who does not walk, stand, or sit with the ungodly. In other words, we will not find any hope, any answer, ultimately, in anything that the world can provide, in any kind of way, because its counsel is devoid of true spirituality, the spirit that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And so the world is incapable of making any provision, and so notice here, the hope is always Put your hope in God, not your hope in that psychiatry or that particular solution or thought pattern or this yoga incident or this mm, might or be um. You know, it's not going to happen. Or change jobs or change your place. It's not going to happen because the issue isn't a change of geography. The issue is a change of psychology. That is, by psychology, I mean the suke. That is, the soul has to be changed. So you can go and change your physical position. You're still going to carry with you everything you have. But you come to Jesus, and he changes the soul. And that's what he's dealing with here. So what about that blessed man? You're not listening. Don't listen to the stand walker sit amongst those who are in the world. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, that is in God's word. And in that law, he meditates day and night. So if the blessed person is doing that, if you are in Christ, that's what you're to do. You're anchored now in the law of the Lord, in his word, and it's going to give you hope. Now what is he saying? Verse 3, and then that blessed man will be like a tree that has been transplanted, not just planted, but transplanted from an arid place where it was about to die to a place of living water a veritable artesian well, and so what happens? Its roots go deep into the ground, and it's anchored, and it draws that nourishment from that water that never quits, never stops, and as a result, he produces fruit, and his leaves do not wither, and whatever he does prospers. That's who we are in Christ. We are that plus person planted, anchored in that place where his word is given and his spirit is at work in us. That's the hope that we have. It's interesting also that one of the last words that John gives in the book of Revelation, one of the last exhortations that he quotes, after coming and giving all this 
stuff, you know, with these images that we're trying to grasp and understand. We, we don't. What is it basically comes down to? It's almost what John says in chapter 1. I'm speaking to you. What I'm giving you in Revelation is not a chronology of end time things. That's not the purpose. This is a book of comfort. A book of showing you that Jesus is king. That Jesus stood was on the cross and he took on the forces of Satan and sin and he prevailed and he was thirsty because of that because the Father judged him for sin and he also was the one who then said it's finished, it's complete, and everything that God expects of me was done, and now I'm in the presence of the Lord forever. And now I'm inviting you to come and believe in me. And so at the end, if, so if you're ever wondering who wins that war, if it's a whodunit. Look to the end, the butler didn't do it. It was Satan who did it, and Jesus beat him up. He prevailed. That's what we need to see. And so there can come one more time in this chapter that's talking about a picture of the new heavens and earth, trying to define it as much in our earthly terms as we can, uh, you know, as we can make sense of it, um, do, so that we'll understand what, wonder, what a wonderful thing it's going to be. But here comes this invitation, verse 17 of chapter 22. The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. That's said in the closing as an invitation to everything that John said in the book of Revelation. Amazing. It ends with that plea. Come. Because you can drink deeply of the water of life. Because Jesus has provided it for us. And that's where we find our hope. So put your hope in God because you're putting your hope in that kind of God who redeems, who did it beautifully, magnificently, and redemptively in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to our pastor here for a moment. The last sentence I read was this. The emptiness of my soul was frightening. I wondered if the joy of my Savior would return. Actually, would ever return. I left down ever. And then he says, it did. It did. During these past several years, the Lord required that I trust him in great darkness. I did, and so I reckoned. Uh, to some measurable degree, I set my future hope on the rock of his promises made to me found at the end of the so-called Great Commission when he reads in Matthew 28, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's one of the anchors upon which I secured my skiff in the tumultuous storms that battered my vessel and it tattered my sails. I knew it was a test. It still is. Our tests continue till we make dock on the heavenly shore. In other words, the presence of you know, we'll fight this battle forever. But here's the point. We will have times of hopelessness. And there'll be all sorts of reasons for it. But if you are in Christ, he has invited us to come and drink deeply from the water he gives. And therefore that happens then, that thirst is taken care of at the very root of our being, of our soul, and our hope is then in God. It's not anything else. One of my favorite hymns is the, um, 
how firm a foundation, where the first verse goes like this, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. There's the word. What more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for G- to Jesus for refuge have fled. He can't say any more. He has already said it. Now we just receive it. And we grow up. He has given you that word, the excellent word for your faith. I trust that that will be the case for you. Whatever you came in here with worrying about the finances, the inflation and all the elections and all the stuff that's happening in the world. And you say, what about my soul? Make sure that you're anchored in Christ and that you're looking to him to assuage the thirst of your soul that his word by his spirit gives to you. That is his promise to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you.